You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, we are continuing our journey in Nehemiah. Are you tired of the book yet? No, it's amazing. I mean, it's just it's so fun. Uh, just quick update. I, as if you follow Facebook and my social, you'll know that I am at the spot where I've been in three different cancers in the last two and a half years, bladder cancer, metastatic melanoma, and squamish cell skin cancer. And as far as medicine can find out, I'm cancer-free. <laughs> kind of boring life, but you know how it goes. Sherry seems to be pleased with that. I hope you guys out there are pleased too. It's just, it's amazing to think what the prayers of thousands of people can do would put together with medical science. So I'm just really glad to be here and really glad to be alive. And big thing, we are doing double doubles. I am. Sherry's not. Seven, seven, five, five. Okay, what's seven, seven? That's how old I am. Somebody greeted him this morning, hey, young man, what planet am I young on, for crying out loud? Sheesh. And 5-5 five, five is what? That's how long we've been married. Now, we'll age out on the 5-5 five, five thing here in, in a month or so, but it just it's very fun. I love numbers. So we're talking about numbers uh, in, in Nehemiah, I, and we've had a series of sermons. Jay started us out with just rekindled hope and a commitment to take the risk to go back to Jerusalem and ask the king to support that mission. And we talked about the, I think Jay should have called it the rise of the resistance, don't you? He avoided that temptation, but I thought he shouldn't have. And just talk about when you go God's work, you can get opposition. And then the commitment to keep doing it. Matt did a great sermon on building your integrity. And last time he talked about, Jay talked about, don't quit. Because it's a temptation when things are hard. Today, we're at a different level of things. Today, we're here. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in how long? 52 days to build the wall. Whew. That means everybody got on board. What do you think the quality of construction was? Eh. All enemies heard about this, surrounding nations afraid and lost their self-conscious because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. After the wall had been rebuilt, Nehemiah 7, and it set the doors in place, the geek peers and musicians, Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I mean, foundation. Now, I did a little research, Nehemiah's wall. And if you look and do your web search, you will find out that they have discovered Nehemiah's wall. If you look on the thing here, you'll see, you know, Temple Mount up there, you see Dome of the Rock, and then down south of that, on the edge of the Kedron Valley, is David City. That's the original Jerusalem, is David City. And you see there a step stone structure that's old, and then Nehemiah's wall. Well, this is what it looks like. And if we go in a little bit on that piece right there, it looks like this. And what happened is there was this small tower 
that everybody assumed was built in the Greek era, 2nd century BC, but it was falling down. And there some prior excavations had been done and it actually weakened the structure. They don't like things to fall down in Jerusalem, so they decided, let's see if we can redo it. So they commissioned Dr. Eliot Mazar, one of the very fine Israeli archeologists, to head a team to fix this thing. And basically what they do uh, in cases like this, they'll actually take it apart, number every stone, do pictures, all that kind of stuff, and they'll reconstruct it with contemporary mortar so it'll stand up and look like it always did. Well, they got started in the project and it was worse than they thought. And they're really having trouble and they got down to the bottom of it and they started dating some stuff and instead of being second century BC, they discovered it's fifth century BC, about 450 BC. Does that number ring any bells? Yeah, that's Nehemiah. Instead of this being a later addition, they discovered that it's part of Nehemiah's wall. And we have it today. You can go see it. Now, when I was in Jerusalem, we didn't go to this place, but it's there. This is a concrete historical fact that Nehemiah built this wall. Now, what's the quality of construction? like not good at all. That's why they had so much trouble with it. It was done quickly, but it was finished. And so we actually know who did this piece of the wall. And it's like this. This is Nehemiah 3. He also repaired the wall to pull of Solomon by the king gardens as far as the steps down to the city of David. Remember I mentioned that. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of uh, Azbuk, that's a different Nehemiah, ruler of a half-stick to Bed-Sur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. That's the piece of the wall we're looking at. It's mentioned there in Nehemiah chapter 3. Now that just fascinates me. I don't know about you, but you get it anyway. Yeah. That's who did it. We have his name. And one of the amazing things in this book, all these names are written down, and when I'm reading through Nehemiah, oh, oh man, I'm tired of a whole bunch of names i never heard of. But see, the point is, everybody is remembered. Every person counts in this team effort to rebuild the walls. That's why God does stuff. Well, let's look at it now. This is Nehemiah 8. We're doing 8 through 10. And I will not read the whole chapters, much I'd like to. But it begins like this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites settled in their towns, all the people came together as one square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. When all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So in the first day of the seven months, as their peace brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who were able to understand. They all came together. And we're thinking, how do you rebuild your spiritual life? Because after a big task, you tend to do letdown. Or maybe you're just in a tough spot, like Jerry was talking about last week, and you're tempted to let down. How do you rebuild your spiritual life? Well, the first thing is community in unity. And I look at this, and what we're talking about here is the family believers creating a synergy toward God. And that's why we come together. That's why we come together here in the building, and those of you who are online, we come together because when there's something together, there's an energy that develops as we have a synergy work together. 
Hebrews tells us this, let us hold unswervingly the hope we profess for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That's what we do. Not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's called to do it together. That's the way they did their team. That's the way we do our team. Now, it's not just the Sunday morning gathering. We have gatherings all through the week as various ministry teams get together and do the good work of God. That synergy of a community and unity is what we're talking about. And we gather together to encourage one another toward love and good deeds. You don't go to church. You don't go to church. What do you do? You are the church. We are a community that does the work of God and the mission of God together. Nehemiah was building a wall. We're doing good in the city of Gresham. You don't go to church. And I know you do. But see, if you only go to church, you're missing the good stuff. You're just going to a meeting. The synergy of being together is doing good work together and following the mission of Jesus Christ and encouraging each other. Sometimes it's praying together. Sometimes it's laughing together. Sometimes it's snarking each other. I've already done all those this morning. Got accused of all of those things. <laughs> As the body of Christ, we're being reminded of the importance of coming together to gather the collective blessings from God, to reap in the glory of corporate worship, to love one another, to share in the joy and mercy of the Lord, which are new every morning. To gather is to come together, yet to gather is to reap harvest. The gospel is about relationships, which is strengthened when we gather. As you move through your day, may you meditate on being intentional as you gather with others in every walk of life, work, home, and community, so that you may be a beacon on light and hope through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lori Tapia, I have no idea who she is, pastor of Hispanic Ministries for Disciples of Christ. But well said, well said, well said. It goes on. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So the first day of seven months, he did it. Brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who were all able to understand. He read aloud from daybreak till noon. Why didn't they just get their phones out and read it themselves? Before the water gate, in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened, he read it aloud, and all the people listened. That's that active involvement. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests, Levites, gathered around Ezra, the teachers, to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. Now, we know that festival today is the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles. And it celebrates a time when they're in the wilderness, coming across the wilderness, and they lived in tents. And it's to remind them where they've been and how God guided them through that time. The problem is they had not been doing this for a long time. And they read it in the book of the law. They said, huh, guess what they did? They went out and got gathered branches and celebrated that feast together 
as the people of God. That's part of what we do in this thing, is we're connecting with God's Word in a way that transforms our lives. So community and unity, connecting with God's Word. Now, where do we find God's Word? Where do you find God's Word? Come on. The Bible. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. And what's the Bible? Well, 2 Timothy 3, one of the key verses. All scriptures God breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's not just knowledge. It's life transforming. So what I believe here is Holy Scripture is God speaking. It's not a record of what God said. The inspiration of Scripture means the Scripture is God speaking today. That's why we read it together. That's why we preach from it. That's why we practice it. That's why one of the things you have on the back table there is this reading plan. Grab one and do it. Gosh, that'd take like four minutes every day. That'd be terrible. Goodness. We also believe the Bible, what the Bible actually teaches is to receive as truth from God. Now, this means we need to understand what it says. That's what Nehemiah's people did. They understood it. There's lots of wacko ideas of what the Bible says. That's why you get together and read it in community and ask, what does the Bible say? But what it actually says is truth from God. And for those of us who believe God and believe that he's the Lord of the universe, we want to follow what he says. It's truth from God. And we shape our lives around that. This intrigues me. Acts 13, church is new. Now the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, there's that celebration of worship, peace. The Holy Spirit said, set apart me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I'm called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is what? This is prophecy. This is God speaking to the community, say, send and Saul and Barnabas to do the work I've got for them. What's prophecy? 1 Corinthians 14. When people speak the word of God for transforming power, and that word may come from scripture, it may come from new revelation, the one who prophesies speak to people for their strengthening, for their encouraging, for their comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, has a point, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. That's what prophecy does. Scripture is God's authoritative word to receive the truth from God. But prophecy is speaking the truth of God, speaking the word of God, both Bible and new revelation, for life-transforming power. And we believe in that here. Prophecy, that's God continues to speak through scripture and through new revelation to churches and individuals to guide them to specific to his specific mission of Jesus. Yeah, we'll fix that for next service. <laughs> he continues to speak. First Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. But also, 
test them. Because not all the prophecies are from God. There's a story that Sharon and I have in our history. Uh, we were married in, what year were we married in, Sherry? 1968. It was a terrible year, except for one really happy event. Uh, shortly after that, we moved up to Denver, Colorado, where I was teaching math in a junior high there, Carmody Junior High. And my goal at that point was to become a university math prof and be a faculty sponsor for an IV group or a campus crusade group, something like that, because I'd seen the power that a professor could have for Jesus on a university campus. That was my mission. Halfway into that first year of teaching, I was getting connected into the school district there, Jefferson County Public Schools, and we were at First Baptist Lakewood, and a missionary from the Philippines showed up, Don DeBoer. And uh, so the pastor of the church came and said, hey, Gary, why don't you go talk to Don Bozo? I said, why wouldn't I talk to him? He said, well, he's a superintendent of school that teaches missionary kids in the Philippines. Okay. Why wouldn't I talk to him? Well, he's teaching missionary kids. Yeah, I teach kids here in the United States. Why do I want to talk to him? Gary, why don't you go talk to him? I don't want to talk to him. I'm a busy guy. Gary, go talk to him. So I went and talked to him. <laughs> so Sherry's there beside me. She's, what, four or five months pregnant at that point, and I'm in a good job headed in the right direction, and I realize he's recruiting me about halfway through this conversation. And when somebody recruiting you, what do you say? What do you pay? He laughed out loud. They don't pay anything. You raise your own support. I'm going to take a pregnant wife, go thousands of miles to the Philippines where I've never been, don't know anybody, and don't want to go. And what's smart about Besides which, I'd already gotten three induction orders from the Selective Service say, come serve in Vietnam, and I wasn't interested in going in. I'm going to give a draft-secure job, pregnant wife. I mean, you see the whole point. No way. I didn't say it, but don't call me, and I guarantee you I'm not going to call you. We finished our thing. I said goodbye, never to see him again. This is us six months later on the way to the Philippines. <laughs> Kathy Kroll, who was in that church in the youth group, took this picture and sent it to us here just recently because God spoke in that. God said, like the people with Saul and Barnabas, Leave everything. Go to a country you've never been, where you know nobody. At that point, a two-month-old baby, that's Don, our oldest son, stupid off the charts. But why do you do it? Because when God speaks, at least I listen. See, that's prophecy. Now, we tested it because I did not want to go. And we had lots of reasons not to go. But it was the word of God, and it was life transforming. See, that's prophecy. But you have to, you have to test those prophecies. Whoops, didn't want to do that. Test the prophecies. I'll fix this for next time. As I opened the book, all the people could see him because standing above them, he opened it. The people all stood up. Ezra pressed Praise the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. They bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, send portions of food, and celebrate with great joy, because now they understood the words that God had made known to them. We're coming to God through worship. Unity. 
Scripture, worship, to rebuild your spiritual life. Worship is just a response to the revelation of the Lord. Now, in our case, it was go to the Philippines as the dramatic kind of thing, but a lot of things run on that. But worship is a response to the word of the Lord that come lots of ways for who he is, for what he has done, and what he will do. And you do the Revel when you read Nehemiah chapter 9, which I'll resist the temptation to do that, but I really encourage you to do it, that hymn of confession and praise recounts what God has done, who he is, and how they're going to respond to it. That's worship. Now, the dimensions of worship, first of all, is praise. Uh, those of you around me very long know that I pretty quickly am praising my pretty wife because I think she's amazing. I just can't help it because it's just, uh, just who she is. And those who've been around me more than 13 seconds don't, I'm always praising my grandkids because they're amazing too. Why do we do that? That's just part of, that's what worship is. It's declaring the greatness of the God who saves people like me to be a part of his family and calls us to be part of his work. It's just amazing. But a second dimension of this is service. Because the praise we do here when we sing songs and do the things we do together, just one dimension of worship. A second dimension is when you go out of here, you're not leaving church, the church is departing for service. And when you serve the least of these in all kinds of different ways, that is worship. Because you're making the character and mission of our Lord visible for people to see. Serving. So worship and serve is a common phrase in Scripture. It's not just proclamation of how great God is. It's living in light of his mission and character. But it didn't stop there. The third piece in Romans chapter 12, you know the passage of your Bible nerd, is we present our bodies a living sacrifice which are a spiritual service of worship. And there's a place at which we give things, and many times we give up our comfort for the sake of serving the Lord. In our case, the story I'm telling, for us to go to the Philippines was to give up all kinds of comfort. Because I wasn't making much as a teacher at Jefferson County Public Schools. It wasn't unusual for the months to run out before our money ran out. And we had to stretch pretty hard. We went to the Philippines with no support at all. $40 a month was it, Sherry? We lived on every month. I mean, it's stupid. And somehow God provided. But there was a big sacrifice and a huge benefit, too. And then finally, and this is a dimension I don't want to miss, there's a participation in the very life of God. We participate in the divine life as well as the divine mission. John chapter 14, sorry, John 17. I pray also those who believe in me through their message, that's us, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's the Trinitarian relationship. May they also be in us, Jesus prays, just before he goes to the cross. So the word they believe you sent me, they've given the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We participate in the very life of God. That's that communion, the spiritual practices, the listening prayer, whatever you end up calling it, prophecy where God speaks. That's the worship. 
it's a whole person thing, mind, will, emotions, body, every piece of who you are participates in worship. It's a whole people thing. We do it together as the people of God. And it's a whole life thing. Because it's not just on our gatherings on Sunday morning or a everyday worship, everyday a prayer we had here for a while, everyday evangelism coming up. Those are good things. It's a whole life thing. Is a life of worship. He goes on. Chapter 9. Amazing prayer. Please read it this afternoon. 24th day, same month, Israelites gathered together, tasting and fasting and wearing sackcloth, putting dust in their heads. Those worship of Israelite descent said for themselves, all foreigners, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They confessed their sins. And see, when we confess sin for forgiveness and healing, that's a powerful thing to do. But what I have to do is confess my shortcomings. For John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. When we take the sin that we have done, the sin done to us, and the sin done in our presence that defiles us, and talk about it and confess to the Lord of glory, the forgiveness for guilt. And the cleansing from defilement is astonishing. That's why you connect your spiritual life. You're taking God seriously. Believing that he is a God of redemption and grace. It's absolutely life transforming. Absolutely life transforming. I'd like us to read this prayer together. This is a prayer of confession. Would you stand and let's just read this together. This is an ancient prayer of confession. Let's just read it together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk on your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, this isn't in the notes. It should have been. I forgot it. Uh, we also confess the beauty. We confess our sins, but we confess the beauty of our Lord and his salvation. Romans 10, we conf if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him dead, you'll be saved. We only confess sin, we confess the beauty of who God is. And in this prayer in Nehemiah 9, you get both of those coming together. Some of the best confession of the beauty of the Lord is in that prayer. It's incredible. But we talk about it. It makes all the difference in the world. Can we read this? I'll let you sit down for this one. This is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. 
he descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We confess the beauty of our Lord in his redemption together. Nehemiah 10. The rest of the Levites and priests, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, had knowledge and understand, joined with their brothers and nobles into the oath to walk in the Lord's law that was given by Moses, to observe and do the commandments of the Lord, his rules, and his statutes. Now they committed themselves to the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under the Mosaic Covenant, but that's the response is to get to following Jesus. So we're committing to the faithful, gracious discipleship, which is our emphasis this spring, is discipleship growing into Christ-likeness. So we do it with realist. We do it realistically with doable goals. That's what we're doing. So break down your practices like this. If you've got a habit of reading scripture, that's good. If not, start with this. This is literally five minutes a day. It's realistic, but do it every day for 40 days. That's a realistic commitment to life-transforming kinds of things. The thing is, turn emotion into action. Oh, yeah. No, turn it into action. How do you do that? By the power of the Holy Spirit and by the community coming together. Ephesians 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so no one may boast. Do we believe in works-free salvation? Yeah, it's a trick question. What does the next verse say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We get into the family without any works whatsoever, but now we're in the family. There's work to be done during the mission. That's realistic discipleship. Second Peter chapter 3, our next series will be First and Second Peter. You can start reading now. We'll start in about four weeks. But in keeping, no, we'll start after Easter, sorry. But in keeping with the promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And see, that's rebuilding the spiritual passion, is realizing that God wants us to be pure, spotless, obedient, mature children of God. That's what we're committed to doing together. Where's your team? Where about to start? You want to drag up here? And what I'm saying here is take accountable responsibility as spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus. And we need to do it together. And that's from putting yourself under the accountability of somebody else to say, hey, how's it going? Not in a condemning kind of way, but an encouraging kind of way. But just make that done. I've got some people sitting in this room that have asked me, asked to be accountable to me, and I'm accountable to some other people. Uh, because that doing it together is that community and unity. Some helps that may be there. We have our communities of grace. 
Here, Rhonda leads that team, and they're doing the spiritual practice, working currently in spiritual practice of fasting. There are other community groups here, and if you're not in a community group or one of the ministry teams, great thing to do. Uh, my friend John Mark Comer, former pastor of Bridgetown, his new book is out, Practicing the Way. It's spiritual practices for life, but he's taken the older books and translated it into contemporary stuff. He's an excellent communicator and a strong man of God. I encourage you to get the book and read it and then put it into practice. A book that I found, or something I found really helpful, some of you remember Jeremy Burt. Jeremy and Monique were part of our congregation. They went up to his parents in Seattle. They're back in, in Nashville now. This was me with them a couple of weeks ago. And you see Princess Gwendolyn there, nine years old. I arrived there on my birthday. So Princess Gwendolyn researched, purchased, prepared, and presented me with a marvelous birthday cake. Godly woman, for crying out loud, at nine years old. See, so here, Jeremy Monique was taking the picture. Eli, you remember he was born early, cerebral palsy as a result. And little uh, Sophie, amazing. So if you're an Instagram or just want to do it, he does this everyday Bible reading and does a great job. Get something like that. There are different things like that. A book I found helpful is Dallas Willard, The Great Omission, he talks, but it's really a book on the commission to discipleship. We have been reading the J.T. English book, Deep Discipleship. Grab one of these books and read it and put it in, talk about it with some friends. I'm a classic guy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Second World War, ended up losing his life. He was murdered by the Nazis because of his work. And his cost of discipleship and his life together, classic books on the Christian life. The thing of it is, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus Christ, we need to rebuild our spiritual life. That's what we're going to sing about here. Isn't it good to hear Sarah singing again? So good, so good, so good. And Aaron up here too, yes. Is this your first time up for a while? It's been like 10 years, yeah. 10 years, yeah, we'll count it. Yeah, it's just good, and team great, really good job, so good. And we've been, oh, Nehemiah, can we switch over to Nehemiah here? I, I think about this because the thing is, we've talked about rebuilding your spiritual life. And what that means is becoming serious about responding to the word of the Lord. And that's what I would call you to here today. There's prayer teams off on the side. I forgot baptism. How can I forget baptisms? Sheesh. But that's a way of action. We'll do this again next service. But think about it. Do you want to commit your life to Jesus in a new way? Baptism for some of you is something that you just haven't done for some reason. Some of you are brand new. But in this thing together, what I want to think about is this. Nehemiah chapter 8. This is in the midst of the finished wall, the prayerful response, the worshipful celebration. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. See, that's caring for the least of these. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's one of the life verses for so many people, Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. There is an incredible joy to think the Lord of glory has come into this world to bring his beauty and his grace into this hellhole 
of chaos and debauchery. You're reading newspapers, right? Jeez. So what I'd like to do is finish by reading over you an ancient benediction. Grant, Almighty God, that the words we have heard this day with our ears may by your grace be grafted in our hearts, that they may bring forth in us the fruit of a righteous life to the honor and praise of your lame through, the Lord Jesus, Lord, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Go and change the world. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.